When you want to evaluate a church, the best place to start is to examine what it's committed to. God's favor rests on a church that's committed to proclaiming the truth of the gospel, teaching biblical doctrine, worshiping God in holiness, and pursuing fellowship and love among the members. Today on The Wisdom Journey, Stephen looks at the early church in the book of Acts. Stephen called this lesson the first New Testament sermon. I can remember as a teenager preaching my first sermon. Uh, I was frankly terrified, and the sermon lasted about 15 minutes. No one responded to my sermon, but at least no one walked out in the middle of it. I do remember a retired pastor coming up afterward and telling me that it was a fine sermon. Well, he was a nice man who obviously had very low expectations. Well, let me tell you what we're going to study today. We're about to listen in on the very first New Testament sermon, and it's going to have a tremendous response. In fact, it's going to launch the creation of the New Testament church. Now, earlier in the morning on this day of Pentecost, Uh, We watched in our last session as the Holy Spirit descended with supernatural power on these early disciples, and then they delivered the gospel in a variety of languages they had never personally learned. And now Peter stands and he explains the miraculous tongues that occurred here in verse 17, and he does it by quoting the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Now, some people teach that Pentecost fulfilled this prophecy of Joel, and that we all ought to be prophesying and seeing visions and speaking in tongues today. But Peter doesn't end his quote from Joel at this point. What he does is continue on to argue against the fulfillment of Joel on this day of Pentecost. Peter continues on with his quotation here in verse 19. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So Joel isn't describing Pentecost here. He's describing events related to the second coming of Christ. And we know this because the book of Revelation describes these cosmic events taking place in that future tribulation period just before Jesus returns to planet Earth. We also know that even during the tribulation, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So what's Peter what's Peter saying here? Well, let me paraphrase the apostle's words this way. This is the Holy Spirit Joel wrote about. He's now here. And this same spirit who has the power to perform all of Joel's prophecy is empowering us now in this way to speak in these unlearned languages. 
In fact, Peter goes on to announce the king who will sit on the throne of David when Joel's prophecy is fulfilled. He's going to be none other than than Jesus Christ. He describes him here in verse 22 as a man attested by God with mighty works and wonders and signs. In other words, the miracles of Jesus confirmed that he was, as Peter uh, says later in verse 36, both Lord and Christ. Christ is the word for Messiah. However, of course, as we know, Jesus was rejected when he should have been accepted as the Messiah. And with that, Peter now brings together the wonderful plan of God in spite of the evil work of man. Uh, Peter says here in verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. In other words, the crucifixion wasn't a mistake. It wasn't plan B. It was God's plan A all along. Yes, sinful humanity is held responsible for their rejection of Christ. But now Peter's delivering the stunning news that the death of Christ was part of God's plan of salvation from eternity past. All the way back in the book of Genesis in chapter 50, Joseph expressed the same principle when he told his evil brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. That is, God took your evil, your sin, but he turned it, he made it work out so that it would rescue his people. So Jesus' death was in God's plan all along, but now listen to the rest of the plan. Peter says here in verse 24, God raised him up because it was not possible for him to be held by death. Peter then quotes from Psalm 16, where David wrote that the Lord would not let his Holy One see corruption. In other words, the crucified Messiah would not rot away in a grave. He would be raised from the dead. Now, Peter evidently gestures here to the uh, disciples who are standing around him, uh, because he, he, he says here in verse 32 that, that they are all witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. Furthermore, he says that Jesus had promised to send the Holy Spirit, whose powerful signs Peter's hearers are now uh, witnessing. And with that, Peter concludes his powerful sermon by delivering the verdict. Here it is in verse 36. Therefore, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Well, now what? Well, verse 37 tells us, they were cut to the heart and said, what shall we do? The first word from Peter is repent. That Greek word here in verse 38 literally means change your mind. In other words, you thought Jesus was a crazy, out-of-his-mind carpenter. Well, change your mind about him. He's the Messiah. He's the king. And the rest of verse 38 here causes a little confusion, and unfortunately it has led some to teach that salvation is by faith plus at least one work. Peter says here, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. That sounds like baptism is necessary for the forgiveness of sins. But this little preposition translated for, for the forgiveness of your sins, can be translated, as in other passages, on the basis of or because of. 
So you could write that little word because in the margin here to clear it up for you. It ought to be translated, repent and be baptized because of the forgiveness of your sins. Beloved, we're saved by faith alone without works, as the Bible consistently teaches. Although baptism isn't necessary for salvation then, let's not ignore it. It's commanded. It's the public testimony of your identification with Christ. In fact, that Greek word baptizo, baptize, means to immerse. So what happens in baptism? Well, you're put under the water. You're identifying with his death and burial. And then you're pulled up out of the water as you identify with the resurrection of Christ. By the way, the church is commanded to baptize every follower, every disciple of Christ. You'll not find one verse in the New Testament that tells you to baptize your babies. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 commands us to make disciples and baptize them. That is, those who've chosen to follow Christ. Beloved, baptism isn't something your parents uh, do for you. Well-intentioned, though they are, baptism is something you do for Christ. As you tell the world you belong to him, you believe in his death, burial, and resurrection. Well, the response to Peter's sermon here is stunning. Verse 41 tells us that 3,000 people believed his message. They believed the gospel. They repented. They changed their minds about Jesus. And they lined up to be baptized. And suddenly, a small group of disciples becomes a church with more than 3,000 new believers. Now, uh, they they don't have buildings. They don't have Sunday school curriculum. So what do they do? Well, well, let me tell you what they do. They immediately dedicate themselves to the same four commitments that the church ought to be pursuing today. First, there's a commitment to doctrine. Verse 42 says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Let me tell you, the foundation of every biblical church is her doctrines, not her programs. Today, we got a lot of programs, but very little doctrine. Second, there's a commitment here to fellowship. Uh, the original word for fellowship is koinonia, which means partnership. Uh, the New Testament never imagined a believer separated from a local church, but in partnership with other believers in a local church. Third, they're committed here to worship, uh, the breaking of bread and and prayer. They're remembering their Lord by observing communion, by talking to him uh, through uh, prayer. And finally, you have this fourth commitment, and we'll just say it's a commitment uh, to love, to love one another. Verses 44 to 47 uh, describes their love for each other as they are now selling all their uh, possessions and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. We need to understand that most of these Jewish believers would immediately face hardships. They're going to lose their standing in the community. They're going to be kicked out of the synagogue for going against the Jewish leaders. They're going to lose their, their jobs. Uh, they're, they're now taking care of one another's needs because Tremendous needs have now immediately arisen. 
Verse 47 tells us, The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. No wonder it's growing. They're committed to doctrine, worship, fellowship, and love. A great example for every New Testament church today. Well, until our next study, beloved, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. That was Stephen Davey, and he called this lesson the first New Testament sermon. Stephen is the president of Wisdom International. This wisdom journey is taking you through the entire Bible, and we have a lesson for you each weekday. I hope you'll commit to joining us each day. Your journey through life can be marked by wisdom if you conform your life to God's Word. So, join us next time as we continue the wisdom journey.